Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about the episode you're about to hear. It's another lecture that I recently gave that I thought you would enjoy. It covers something that you may have already heard us talk about in a previous episode when I talked with our editor, John Amble, about the 2020 Battle of Susha. But this episode is me presenting not only a lecture of it, but also what I learned, which was after that last episode, what I learned traveling to Nagorno-Karabakh and walking the ground in Susha, thanks to my friend Rusuf and Haider and all those that welcomed me in Azerbaijan and took me inside Nagorno-Karabakh and let me study the aspects of the war from actually standing in positions where big fights happened and understanding terrain analysis. So this this episode, this lecture reflects a lot of the lessons that I've learned since the previous one, since walking the ground. And to be honest, I'm still learning. There's still stuff I'm translating. There's new interviews with battlefield commanders that's coming out that has to be translated. But I think it's of value. I've also received a little pushback, but I stand by my claims that this battle, the Battle of Susha, this urban fight, was the decisive battle of the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War. Not decisive as in tactical decisive, which means you give a marked advantage to one or other side. I'm talking decisive battle, which are hard to find. And I highly recommend Michael Howard's article on when battles are decisive. This was a decisive battle. It achieved the Azerbaijan strategic goal, as stated by the president of Azerbaijan, it brought the war to an end. And unlike past major urban battles, let's say like the Battle of Berlin at the end of World War II, which Eisenhower didn't want to partake because the war was already over, the enemy had been defeated, it wasn't necessary. Battle of Susha, not like that in any way. This was the decisive moment of the war. Had that city not been taken, the strategic goal would not have been achieved victory would not have been achieved. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. In October of 2020, there was a battle called the Battle of Susha City, and that's what I'm going to be talking about. In July of 2021, July of this year, I wrote a report about the battle, and then just last month had the extreme honor, after invitation by an Azerbaijan academic institution, to travel into Nagorno-Karabakh and walk the ground of Susha. And hopefully I incorporate some of those lessons. So if you, you saw my battle report, basically that I wrote about the battle, I have learned some things since then, and, and hopefully I've incorporated it into the briefing for you. So again, there's the same slide on the spectrum of urban warfare, urban operations. Where does the Battle of Susha fall? I think it falls into that very recent, very frequent operation of the city attack. Meaning somebody got there first, and there's another force uh, they want to seize the objective. Why did I write about the Battle of Susha? Why did I think the Battle of Susha is so important? So as the Nagorno-Karabakh War was happening, starting in September of last year, a lot of people in my communities in the Western, basically military analysis, started putting out a lot of articles, podcasts about the lethality of the killer drones, about the the Nagorno-Karabakh war showing that the future of war has changed. It's an RMA type event. Uh, and I've done a lot of interviews since then. 
and especially about the Turkish TB2 medium altitude drone, which did cause damage during this war. And then the Israeli Harap. As I was watching that happen and all, you know, every, especially things like the tank, that really caught my attention probably the most is the tank was obsolete. And everybody who knows me knows I'm a major fan of mobile protected firepower in the urban environment in high intensity combat. But I saw all this media. We were planning to go there because I have a dream job. And the Modern Wars 2 was going to go to Nagorno-Karabakh last summer as part of our summer research trips. We go out every summer. And my close partner in crime, Major Jason Giroux from the Canadian military, is just jealous. But we were planning to go there, couldn't get in there, starting to study it. And then I found this, the war, the entire war ended over an urban fight, an urban battle. And that battle was the Battle of Susha. So I've since continued to talk that I don't think the decisive aspect, what the Western military should be learning from the Second Nakarnagabak War is the, the lethality of uh, the TB2 drone. I don't think it was as prominent as the attention that it's gotten. I think it was confirmation bias of people who want that to be the future. This killer drones doing all the killing for you and less political risk. It's a, a very bad narrative that I dislike passionately. But the urban aspect, this urban battle, what you don't see mentioned is the decisive battle, right? So as a military teacher, decisive battle, meaning it brought one side to the political negotiation table. This battle over a city ended the war. The city of Susha, it's a fortress on a hill, really on a cliff, surrounded by three sides by cliffs. But it has extreme cultural and religious significance for both sides, for both Azerbaijanis and Armenians. In 1992, it had an estimated population of 23,000 Azeris, a decent-sized city. In 2020, it had only an estimated population of 5,000 Armenians. But if you think about it tactically and from military, the overall growth, the buildings, the physical buildings and the infrastructure was there for a 23,000 resident population. There just happened to be only 5,000 living in the city. The city is a very strategic piece of ground for multiple reasons. It sits way above the entire region on clifftops. It literally is a fortress on a hill. The capital city of Steppenkirk or Khan Candy, depending on which side you are. And I found out real quick what terms you use means which side. Uh, so each one of these cities in this entire region has a, both an Azerbaijan and an Armenian name since it's been a contested area for a very long time. But the city sits above the capital. Literally, I was standing on the, the castle walls and it looks like this, the capital city is a thousand meters away. It's a few kilometers away, but it dominates over the capital city. It's at a critical crossroad, and I'll talk about that. Really, only one road, but it sits as like cities do historically in time at a critical crossroads for the entire region. And then, like I said, it's the buffer to the capital of the region, the very heavily populated capital in Khan Candy or, or Steppenkirk, whichever side you are. Severely restrictive terrain, and I'll talk about those cliffs soon. For the Aziris, they consider it the, the cradle of Aziri culture since very famous poets literature, religious factions in Azerbaijan. Same thing for the Armenians, famous churches there, famous people that live there. It's one of the sayings is he who owns Susha owns Karabakh. So, and that's because it, you can really control the entire region from that location.
So I couldn't study the Battle of Susha 2020 without understanding the battle in 1992 during the first Nagorno-Karabakh War. So during that war, the Armenians were the attacking Azerbaijanis, like I said, 23,000 population initially uh, had control of Susha. So about May 8th and 9th was the battle. There was weeks of artillery preparatory fire on Susha from Steppenkirk in the region. The attack plan actually involved attacking the villages around the city, which drew the defenders out. And ironically, and we'll talk about this later, but remember that in firsthand accounts, it talks about scaling the cliffs of the city to get inside the city and disrupt the defense. So the Armenians did that to the Azerbaijanis in 1992. The defenders were also surprised when that happened, when people infiltrated and the, the certain weapons and technologies to include artillery inside the city couldn't be used because the enemy was already inside their defense, already so close that they couldn't use things like artillery. Uh, the main assault happened on May 8th, an estimated 1,000 Armenian-backed forces, uh, which is a, a longer conversation. You know, can you say this is Ar Armenian versus Azerbaijan? There's a lot of proxy forces that joined the fight. This was a tough fight in 1992 to include tank-on-tank -tank battles. There's a famous one. There's a memorial, basically. There's a tank sits along the road between the two cities of Steppenkirk and Susha today that is still a marker from the tank battle that happened in 1992. Very close fight, but the city falls in less than 24 hours. Multiple reasons for that. The status of Azerbaijan as a country and as a military a lot different back then in a lot of disarray, but it was a successful mission for the Armenians who then, you know, take over Susha, take over much of Nagorno-Karabakh. Two interesting figures in studying this. There's, as I learned from this, like any war, the stories matter and the stories, nations need stories and they create heroes. And sometimes it's hard to tell what's truth or what's the story. Two major players during the 1992 war, um, this guy named Monty, who was an American Armenian who joined the fight and was a major part of the Susha operation. And then this other one that I, I, I still to this day am fascinated by, Shamil Basav, who wrote the book up to the right called The Book of Mujahideen. We know he was in Nagorno-Karabakh in 1992. I, I have one person saying from the region saying he wasn't at Susha, but the popular opinion is he was a part of the Azeri defending forces within the city, commanding forces inside the city and defending it. Shamil would later become a very prominent figure in the Chechen Wars, first and second Chechen War. So as an urban warfare scholar, that this dude was who at the Battle of Susha was also at the Battles of Grozny, uh, to me is fascinating. And he has a longer history and, and that's not my field of study, but the stories actually matter. All right, so let's get into basically the, the road to war, the road to Susha. Most people, if you know, the Nagorno-Karabakh war, right? Uh, as I was going over there, I didn't tell a lot of people I was going. I had to explain where it was, uh, where it was Azerbaijan, even, you know, basically between Russia and Iran. But Nagorno-Karabakh, of course, sits between Azerbaijan and Armenia, a very contested region. After the first Nagorno-Karabakh war, basically the ceasefire, and there's a long history to that, right? Uh, the U.S.-Russia, part of this group that was trying to negotiate agreements and, and, and settlements of about Nagorno-Karabakh, a very contested region. But after the first Nagorno-Karabakh War in 1993 ends, this long line of DMZ, what I would call it, they call it the line of contact, is formed 
all along the border of Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan, if you see all the way from this photo of Agdam, all the way down to that city along the Iranian border, there's this long line of contact that is established and it's basically divisions of Armenian-backed forces in bunkers, in minefields, um, very flat area, which I didn't get from this photo and any photo I saw, um, which I, I think I'll talk about, uh, of how flat, open this entire border area was. September 27th of 2020, the Azerbaijan forces attack into the line of contact. And that attack, a big part of that was the breakdown of the Armenians' air defense capabilities. Um, and But there was very advanced technologies like the TB2 that were heavily involved in taking down the air defenses, um, and which leads to anybody in the open who's vulnerable. It doesn't matter who you are. If you lose your air defense, you have to start worrying about looking up. Uh, it's going to be a big issue. So the TB2 was a big part of that. But they also used biplanes in dropping you know, very old school planes in order to AD systems, air defense systems to 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 show themselves and then they could strike them with artillery or uh, a drone or something like that from studying this war this phase of the war this initial penetration of the line of contact was a major conventional fight of artillery mrs engineers infantrymen tanks it made a very heavy fight to cross the line of contact so on the 2nd of october the azerbaijan forces breached the line of contact Around, right where I had that circle, uh, and, and I don't always get the city names, plus there's two names for every city, uh, Jabrili, uh, in that, in that, where I had that circle, they breached the line of contact. So I, I didn't know when I was traveling from, when I would be traveling from Baku to Susha, I just wanted to go to Susha, but my host, of course, wanted to show me some other things to include driving me into a minefield, uh, which didn't make me feel very comfortable, to show me a position along the line of contact, but it was a amazing. I probably should have known that this area, this line of contact is considered one of the heaviest mined areas in the world per capita. Uh, and they're, the Azerbaijanis are demining it. Um, and we actually, like, who is that? And that's part of the Azerbaijan deminers that were right next to the car we were driving. I, I would have not liked to do it, but it gave me these two great photos, which is just an example of the line of contact, how it was, you know, that's a makeshift bunker, that position on the right was called the, the concrete building. That's why they drove me where I really didn't want to go. Uh, it had nothing to do with urban, but it's an important understanding the war leading up to the, the urban fight is that that position was an, an Armenian position along the line of conduct uh, over a hundred miles. And they had a heavy fight trying to get it. And there's expended uh, Fagot anti-tank missiles there. You could see artillery pieces off in a distance that they haven't been able to get to to demine. And what they told me was that position, and I believe them. So the penetration line of contact happened around 2 October. That position held out for until about 28 October. It held out for over a month, and they simply drove around it. But it, it reminded me of this, of the old school conventional aspect of this fight and how heavy it was fought. And they even took me to the tank ditch. And they talked about the difficulty of their tanks crossing ditches, how much of the full combined arms fight that this was. And one story, I don't, I didn't get to see a picture of it. Maybe it was true, but basically they drove a tank into a tank ditch because they couldn't cross it. And they just had the other tanks drive over the top of it. I've never heard anything like that, but interesting. So back to the road of war. Uh, the 7th of October, so five days later, there's a major fight for the city of Hadrut. And when I say city, 
something that I didn't know until I went there is that each one of these dots, as you see on this map, and that's the maps that I was following, cities like Kadrut, uh, Jabrili, and I was that picture I just took was actually in the city of Fuzili. And if you look at that map of that city up in Ogden, these were used to be cities. The city of Fuzili, where there was major fighting happened in the line of contact, we drove past it and there was no buildings. It was literally just foundations of buildings because at, for the last 30 years, this, this region hasn't been used. So the population has left in Fuzili and Ogden. And there's you know the stories of atrocities that happened, that happened but what's left is, is the remnants of cities. So can you kill a city? Here's examples where I saw that you could kill cities by removing the population, putting it inside basically a militarized zone and not letting anybody come back. It was basically vandalized. And in that city of Fuzili, that's a dot on that map. There's no city there. It was literally just foundations of buildings and sometimes one cement block high. But the seventh was there was an urban aspect to the Battle of Hadrut to include securing the key terrain around Hadrut and then firing on it with artillery as the ground forces were maneuvering in or the Armenian forces were allowed to escape out the back. Around 19th of October is when you see that fighting fusily happening. So that was 19 October. Of course, there's expansion going on in the eastern side of the corridor, and they start maneuvering forces west and north up to the Lanchin Corridor, which is critical. So the Lanchin Corridor, the city of Lanchin, and the road and the corridor, basically, there's one road that goes from Armenia to Susha to the capital. The road that passes from Lanchin to Susha is the only road that provides Armenia access into Nagorno-Karabakh. So you see as early as the 26th of October, Azerbaijani forces are maneuvering on the Lanchin corridor, which is huge. If that is taken from Armenia, it's so, so huge. And something I didn't understand until I walked into the ground, Along the entire western edge up there in Ogden, there was over a core of both sides positioned along the line of contact. And there was a major core level deception operation happening to include the Azerbaijan officer that was escorting me, who was from the, the war college and was in the, the division headquarters during the fight, did not know what the plan of attack for Susha was and also thought that the fight would be coming from Ogden headed west. So Armenia had to commit forces over to the Western side. It was a major deception operation. Everybody, both sides, thought a major penetration of Nagorno-Karabakh would also come from Ogden, from that core over there. I think it's a fascinating example of division-level planning and deception, operational art, I mean, you name it. So around the 28th, you know, anywhere from the 26th to the 28th, we now know that a secret operation happens basically north of Hadrut, where special forces walk through the woods because there's no road for four to five days along that where you see that 2830 arrow um, towards Susha and do a ground insertion, commando insertion, undetected. Of course, they have air superiority, so there's probably drone escort and observing, but clandestinely maneuver through Nagorno-Karabakh, through the heavy wooded area as I left the line of contact and you move towards Lanchin and Shushi, you see that it's it turns into mountainous, heavily wooded terrain with only a few roads. And, and that's kind of important to me too in watching Kill TV and trying to not debunk, but understand the drone warfare. I can see how easy it was to be picked off once you lost any air defense because there's only a few roads in this entire region. There are no railroads. 
There are no airports. They, they're putting one in now. There's only a few hard-packed roads that in this entire region because it was, it was left basically undeveloped for 30 years. So these special forces maneuvering by foot with heavy backpacks for four to five days, no resupply, nothing, moving towards Susha. The road that, or the path they took, they later turned into a road and it's called Victory Road. And that's the road that I, they drove me on to get to Susha. Fascinating you know, stories and part of the national identity is you know, Victory Road. They made a road from where these soldiers walked. An interesting combined arms aspect to it is you, you have a day or two in advance of special forces maneuvering through the woods. You also have behind them engineers cutting paths through the woods off some of the dirt roads to get the artillery and other systems closer to what they know is going to be the fight. I didn't know that before traveling there. I find that aspect of the battle fascinating. So this brings us to the close fight, right? So we know from reports of the soldiers, and, and now there's a field reports from the SF commanders, that a massive amount of special forces infiltrated into the region and had in their mind, and only a few people knew the overall plan of Susha. So in the close fight of the, the battle for Susha, Around October 30th, the first, basically, troops in contact, the first event that we can see is around October 30th, 2020. There's clashes five kilometers southeast of Susha around the Lalanchian Corridor. It's a very close wooded fight. And this is not drones doing the fighting. This is ambushes on both sides. And actually, the Azerbaijanis who are trying to maneuver towards the Lanchin Road are heavily ambushed and lose a lot of soldiers and a lot of vehicles along these very constricted roads where it doesn't matter if you own air superiority, you can put guys in the woods in classic, for us, ranger school style ambushes. And there's, some, there's a lot of videos of that happening on both sides. So that's happening around October 30th. So by November 4th, though, what we didn't know, so you know, some of this is open source intelligence, seeing the videos and geolocating them. Like I said, there's this hidden operation going on where massive amounts of special forces soldiers, and I found out it's it's a joint force, their version of Navy SEALs, a whole different types of special forces organizations under one commander have moved into the region and are set up in the forest around Susha. If you remember that first photo, it showed the, you know, Susha up on the cliff. Well, to the left and right of those roads are these very dense wooded areas, and those two stars to the left and right of Susha, if you can see them, are really where the two staging points, ORPs, battalion headquarters of the commandos that were going to do the raid. And they're there waiting, what we believe, waiting for the basically the plan to evolve into what they have. But the fighting in Dashanti, that number two, which is that city that came to play in 1992, is just south of Susha at, at the base of the cliffs. There's this little city called Dashanti. There's fighting starting to happen around November 4th in that city, which is clear representation and news to the world that something's happening around Susha. November 4th, you start to see videos of Azerbaijan special forces with giant rucksacks off to the side set up in ambushes along the main road. And if I didn't mention it, right, so Susha sits on top of a cliff. There's only one road along its western side that is the one road in the region that runs right next to Susha and it keeps going and winds to Khan Candy or the, the capital. And there's two little roads that go into the front of Susha and, and out the back that connect to that main road. 
By November 6th, we see videos of Azerbaijan special forces ambushes sealing that road. So that's the number three on my, my map to the south and north of the city. So you see a classic isolation of the city. Around this time is when we know Azerbaijan special forces, unknown number. I think that this was a uh, basically a brigade operation for the, the special forces. But, you know, let's say 200 special forces scale the cliffs to the southeast, right where that number three and the star right below it. I have a picture of me standing above that location. Scaled the cliffs to get into the city without the defenders knowing. Is it the exact same spot that the Armenians scaled the cliffs to get into the city in 1992? Possibly. Either way, Azerbaijani forces by November 6th have climbed that cliff. And this isn't like a, the sheer vertical cliff that I showed you. It was actually, I think, very feasibly done. There's actually a hiking path on this, the south-north side that uh, there's some really cool Google Earth photos of. At this point, it really made me think about the amount of terrain analysis that they had to know about this city. So if you think about the people that are fighting this city, Azerbaijanis that haven't been in this, no Azerbaijani has been in this area in 30 years. People that grew up outside of Nagorno-Karabakh but know how important Susha is. The Again, I can't confirm this. The rumor is that Azerbaijan military brought 48 guides with them, very old individuals that knew this area. Could that be part of the story? Maybe, maybe not. But they clearly had immense train analysis of the surrounding areas of the city and the plan of attack to disrupt the defense and not go up those main roads, which are clearly... Anybody would think that's the way the attack was coming. I have no idea why the, the defenders, which we estimate to be 2,000 people, 2,000 Armenian-backed fighters, tanks, artillery, rockets, mortars inside the city, didn't have that area covered. So the, around the 6th, the ambushes are set, isolated. SF have infiltrated into Susha, almost like a commander raid and gotten inside the city. And that's where the close fight starts. And I have a couple photos of that. There was artillery support, right? So like I said, there's those engineers cutting roads to get artillery and mortars closer to the city to support the overall operation. And we see that in videos. The surprise aspect of this operation was critical to the city attack. And then something weird on November 7th happened, which actually, ironically, I was there on November 10th of this year. And the weather was exactly the same. A huge amount of fog rolled in on November 7th. At this point, the Azerbaijan Special Forces have, are starting to push Armenians out of the city. But the Armenians still controlled the wooded areas around the city. And if you see aerial photos, Susha is really weird because it's on a cliff, but it still has lots of woods, trees basically inside the city. And it's surrounded by woods along this plain level that you see around the western side of the city. So there is a very close fight, but clearly the Azerbaijans are winning that close fight, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But on November 7th, fog rolls in, which prevents the aerial aspect of this. So the TB2s and the ISR and all that is almost taken out of the fight. And that's when you see a major counterattack coming from mo mostly from the north to the south out of that capital city. So armored vehicles, tanks, trying to get Susha back. And I think that was a critical moment in time for the commandos inside the city to immediately transition to the defense and hold what they had basically fought to gain. 
And I'll talk about that in my lessons. But on November 7th, you see that fog roll in. You see a bigger fight happening as Armenians, rightfully so, see it as an opportunity to push very vulnerable armored forces and things like that along the main road and try to push them into the city. And they're repelled. Some of those commandos even man-packed like cornets and other ATGMs with them because they knew they would need it for the close fight inside the city. If you read my report, there's basically a social media campaign happening from both sides where one side saying they now control Susha and the other side saying, no, 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 you don't. The Azerbaijanis use November 8th as victory day, basically. And, and there's a bunch of signs all over the country now that say November 8th was the, basically the, the end of the operation. November 10th is basically when there's a Azerbaijan president saying we own Susha. And that's when Armenia comes recognizing they lost the city immediately, let's say surrenders. So Russia negotiated a, a settlement, but the settlement is you just lost any part of Nagorno-Karabakh that Azerbaijan took, and there's no giving anything back. So really the only thing they kept was Stepankirk, the capital. So they surrendered because had they not, could Stepankirk been taken? Maybe. Would Azerbaijan have even attempted that? I think highly unlikely. One, if I didn't mention it, the civilians, once forces started to close off the Lansing Corridor, and once artillery barrages started to happen on Susha, 90 to 100% of the civilian population is believed to have evacuated mostly north to Stepankirk. So this was a another example in history of a city fight happening without very limited civilian casualties, if, if any reported from an actual battle, because they'd all evacuated. Had Azerbaijan forces pushed their luck and tried to take all of Nagorno-Karabakh by just taking the last bit, which is the capital city, the amount of civilian casualties would have been huge. The international outcry would have been huge. So they stopped peace negotiation. Now Russia and Turkey both have peacekeepers in the region. And actually, I didn't know that I would be driving past one of a Russian checkpoint um, because I thought they were just along the, the south there, along the Lansing Corridor. But no, they're, they're sitting at the base of Susha. And actually, this region, I thought the city was open. But the city's not open. The city's basically a military garrison right now. And there's a massive amounts of construction going on right now. And there's one, the one hotel I was staying at is open for visitors and, and the rebuilding. But the checkpoint right at the base of Susha was attacked by a terrorist two days after I left a grenade attack. But so talking about the close fight. So a year later, you can still see lots of remnants of the close fight, artillery shells through buildings, pot marked. There's a video of me touring it. And one of the inter interesting aspects of the touring, how much the city isn't destroyed, how much there isn't defensive positions that you would imagine if I was defending the city, I would be. And then there's also examples of all of the firing happening in certain buildings, clearly 762, possibly larger caliber weapons being fired at buildings through windows but you see very little penetration of buildings, which gets to the uh, my personal belief that we need concrete penetrating weapons. But overall, the, the destruction of the city was, I think, taking an urban area that used to house 22,000 people, talks to the amount of planning that was done and to overwhelm the defenders and get in so close. Same thing as 1992, once the defenders got so close, many of the assets inside the city could not be used to include MLRS, artillery. They were just too close. That picture on the right is a picture of basically Azerbaijan forces inside of a building. Uh, so basically a squad of infantry soldiers with an Armenian tank on the outside. And that's the level of the close fight that this took. This, despite all modern technologies and the belief in Nagorno-Karabakh, 
the decisive battle came down to close dismounted forces with a full suite of capabilities fighting very close formations in urban terrain. This is a picture of the counterattack. Those are Armenian forces coming out of the capital city headed south on November 7th, using the fog, as you can tell, as cover, leading with tanks, good ideal, trying to penetrate back into Susha and the tough fight that the Azerbaijan forces did to keep that at bay, and they successfully do. So that's the picture I told you of me right above where we know that Azerbaijan forces climbed that, you could say cliffs, climbed that steep terrain and infiltrated the city. It is a story I think that they should rightfully show, make a part of their national identity as a, a very, for us, a, a World War II point de hoc type of moment. So my overall lessons, cities remain operational and strategic objectives in war, right? There's other arguments on the need for it, but this entire war came down to a city. It was the decisive objective. I don't think you can argue that. And I think that will continue in warfare. That yes, there's going to be a large conventional fight like we saw in this in the open terrain. And you don't win anything by bombing or drones or anything. You win by people closing the distance and seizing terrain. And mostly it's urban terrain how that matters. So despite the overwhelming commando aspect of this, this was a, a joint operation. Uh, like I said, the conventional forces that fought up to the Lansing Corridor, heavy losses, the engineers cutting the road up to along the path to get the artillery closer to be able to support the ground forces. This is about a joint fight, combined arms maneuver to fight for urban terrain. I think this war teaches that. that. I think really interesting, this war shows that you have to be both sides in both moments of the war. Militaries have to be prepared to attack and defend urban terrain. So right, so if you're the Armenians, I could, I can be critical. They weren't prepared to defend that piece of terrain. Lots of changes I would have made had I been there even early on. And there's reasons for basically them having them the maneuver some of their uh, more elite forces around the battlefield because they're thinking that a major penetration was happening at another part of the theater. But the same thing for the attackers, the Azerbaijanis, like I said, three major counterattacks happened during November 7th, 8th. Had the defenders dismounted commandos not been able to repel those? And I think there was a moment where it was a close fight. It was close to being lost the war would have went a different way and they wouldn't have been able to achieve victory, clearly. And I think sometimes in our training environments, we always pack them to attack and we'll, we'll kind of hand wave, okay, now we'll transition to defense. Uh, it's got to be a major part of what we do and what we prepare for. Uh, and then lastly, from my individual study, right, I used to have, I usually have a slide that shows how many city attacks have happened in the last 20 years, whether you're talking the Middle East, Ukraine, Aleppo, Syria, Mosul, Mawari, Donetsk about how the city attack is a major part of that. There is a narrative about what it takes to do that. And there's different schools of thought and some of them well-intentioned, well-backed. I'm not fully on the return of siege warfare, fully on the return of positional. I think you need a little bit of all of it. But I, I caution the narrative of the city attack being this major operation to basically encircle, penetrate from one's, one area and then start clearing from that. I think that's Although that might be the prescribed doctrinal approach that I've seen, it's the least preferred in my mind, where you see in this operation a massive deception operation, a massive isolation, and but also then a massive infiltration through multiple avenues to not fight the way the defenders want you to fight, to disrupt the defense and using the elements of surprise and 
terrain that nobody thinks is possible. And then also time, whether it's the operations in Israel, whether it's first battle of Fallujah, whether it's this war, how time comes into play. So if you think that you're going to attack a city and overwhelm it, one, depending on the way you do it, it's going to take time. And two, you usually don't have the time you think you need. And I think that was, again, the case here. It had to be a rapid fall of Susha. And I argue that if Armenia might have been able to hold out a day or two longer, would the situation change? Would international, would Russia have intervened? Would we have intervened and said that a ceasefire needed to happen now? Who knows? But we're either it's going to take you a longer time or you need to be able to be prepared to hold for longer. I think it's an aspect of urban warfare studies that we don't talk about as much. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.